Well, welcome to Women in the Word today. Glad to be with you. Great to be back this semester with our old friends and lots of our new friends, women we wouldn't have known even. It's wonderful. I'm excited about the book of Matthew. Um, you might want to get that map that Deb passed out last week and take a look at it a couple times while we're going through this uh, next two chapters together. I was thinking about how students went back to school recently from their winter break, and it was making me think about the first day of school. Some of you remember that in elementary school, what that felt like, the first day of school, just getting all ready, getting your crayons and your pencils and your paper. And remember that, do they still make this? That glue that was like in a jar with the brush. There was a brush in the lid. Do they still have that? That was so cool to have that. And that paper that was beige and still had slivers of wood in it. <laughs> Remember that? That was so fun, those big wide-ruled papers. We had to be prepared for school so we could do our job well. Last week, we looked at the amazing birth of Christ, the coming of the Messiah that promised from God, but before Jesus' ministry would begin, he would get prepared. So he would do his job well. He would get prepared for the work that God had for him. That was God's plan. And today I want to look at what those preparations involved. Um, you know, when Jesus came in the flesh to dwell in our world, there was an awful reality that came with him. As long as God's kingdom is at work on this earth, there will be earthly kingdoms whose goal is to destroy it. We read last week when Jesus was just a toddler, that earthly force raised its head in the form of a king named Herod. He asked the wise men, tell me when you find this Messiah, this newborn king, so I can come and worship him. But we all know his goal was to end his life. Jesus would need to be protected, and God himself would orchestrate all the protection of young Jesus. So I want to pick up the story there. Matthew 2, verse 12. The wise men were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they departed to their own country by another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, we kind of read that and think, okay, then they went to Egypt. Okay, think about traveling miles and miles and miles on a rocky road down into to ravines, uphills, dangers around you, and doing all that with a toddler. You know, it's hard to even take a toddler to Costco. So to take a toddler from one country to another was not an easy task. They were leaving the country they loved to enter a country that wasn't even theirs. And did you notice in all these verses that I just read and ones that come up later that the safety of Jesus is the priority. They talk about the child Jesus. Joseph, get the child Jesus and Mary, but it's always first. 
the child Jesus. That was the priority. And we also can't help but notice how Joseph just followed God's plans without question. He held the high position of the guardian of Jesus Christ. And he took that very seriously, immediately at God's command. He took this long, hard journey, leaving his country, his family, his friends, his synagogue, his people behind him. And God used dreams. He used angels of the Lord. He used Joseph, and he used distance to keep his son safe. And then we just read another prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Just as God delivered Israel, the son he loved, out of Egypt to escape slavery, which was hundreds of years earlier, God would soon bring his beloved son out of Egypt for us to deliver us from the slavery of sin. Because guess what? Jesus grew up, and he became our deliverer. Colossians 1 tells us this. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Meanwhile, of course, Herod, Herod was furious because his plan had failed, and so then he sat down and coldly calculated about the age Jesus would have been, and then decided to kill every toddler boy two years of age and under in the town of Bethlehem. And these children became the first casualties in the warfare that would be inevitable between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of Christ. One man put it this way, men will do anything to be rid of Jesus. They care not how many children, men, and women are destroyed so that they can resist his kingdom and crush his holy cause in its infancy. Yet vain is their rage. The holy child is beyond their jurisdiction and their sword. You know, Jeremiah predicted this very horror in Bethlehem. Look at verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You know, Jesus walked a pathway that was full of prophecies. This prophecy shows us the horrible result of these two kingdoms clashing right as soon as God took on flesh. Immediately we see it. And the prophecy here first predicted Israel being captured by Babylon and the children that got caught in the middle of that battle and the mothers that lost those children. And, and um, Jeremiah pictures Israel walking past Rachel's grave while they wept over the loss of their children. Uh, Rachel was the wife of Jacob, and she was the mother of the 12 sons of Jacob, and uh, 12 sons of Israel that became Israel's tribes, and she would have wept at the fate of these children in Israel. Matthew sees this prophecy fulfilled at the birth of Jesus because Rachel's grave was near Bethlehem. And what he's saying is if Rachel were alive and listening, she would be weeping at the sound of those children's lives being taken in Bethlehem. 
mourning because the children are no more. And in America, we don't see this. We see other kinds of persecution. But these kinds of cries are heard all over the world. When children and men and women lose their lives for the cause of Christ. But here's the hope. Those who lose loved ones in the battle that's between God and evil don't have to say those words because they are no more. We know where they are. We know where those people are. We expect to meet them again in glory because Jesus grew up and became the guardian of our souls. He has reserved a special place for the persecuted in heaven. You know, I've had the privilege of going to Africa on mission trips a couple times, and they were telling us one of those times we went about the plight of women who come to Christ and walk away from the other faith that everyone else is immersed in. And as they walk away, they have to realize they're going to get kicked out of their house. Their husband's never going to talk to them again. He's going to keep the children. She's going to have no help, and she's going to have nowhere to live. And that happens all the time when someone decides to follow Christ. And I can remember one time being in a car there late at night, and our headlights went across a field just out in the middle of nowhere, and there were tall grasses, and our headlights caught the eyes of a woman who had decided, I'll just sleep in this tall grass tonight. Probably someone who'd been pushed out of her home because she decided to follow Jesus. But he is the guardian of our souls, Look at Matthew 5.11. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, Jesus, the Christ child, had the power of an endless life. Herod was mortal and sinful, and he died in his sins. And when he died, an angel told Joseph, return to Israel. But he found out Herod's son was in office, and an angel came again and said, go to Galilee. And that's what Joseph did. He took his young family. They went to Galilee. It was actually a despised district because Jews and Gentiles both were together, mixed in that area. Joseph took them to a small town named Nazareth. This town also was known for its heathen people more than it was known for its godly people. And that is where King Jesus grew up. In a common town with common people in a rustic area in Israel. And I think the growing boy Jesus must have been a blessing to people in the town when they saw him running down the street. Look what Luke 2 says. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Look at verse 23 with me. 
And Joseph went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, I wanted to address that because if you search through the Old Testament looking for that prophecy, you're never going to find it. We can't find a prophecy that says Jesus is going to come from Nazareth. So here's a couple things that it could mean, and these come from Old Testament prophecies. First, the root word of the word Nazareth means branch or sprouts. And we know that Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesied that God would raise up a righteous branch from King David who would be a good and a rule wisely, a good king, and that is Jesus. Another possibility is Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be scorned and despised. And the term from Nazareth means you were scorned and despised. Anybody who was from Nazareth, that was the initial reaction everybody had to you. So the fulfillment of the prophecy that Matthew's speaking of could be of Jesus being from Nazareth. It would be the contempt that the religious leaders held for him, the scorn and the way that they despised him. Remember Nathaniel, when he heard about him, said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now that was kind of a mild reaction. When religious leaders spoke the name of Nazareth, many of them would have spit on the ground when they said it. And some of them would have spit on the ground when they heard the name Jesus. And some of them would spit on Jesus himself as he went to the cross. But the cross couldn't stop him because Jesus grew up and became a conqueror. His name is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and all the nations will bow before him. So I was thinking, have you ever gone to Egypt? Have you ever been in this frightening, vulnerable place that maybe is unfair and you had to flee and wait on God? Maybe you got caught in the middle of two kingdoms clashing. Charles Spurgeon said this, We can't expect to serve the Lord and always have an easy time of it. We must obediently journey across a desert if we have a charge to keep for our Lord. And if we must tarry in Egypt, we need not return until the Lord sends us our passports. I thought that was a great way to put it. You know, we don't need to fear Egypt. We are protected in those kind of situations. We can face adversity with the courage that Joseph did, with the obedience and patience that Joseph displayed because Jesus grew up and became our deliverer and became our guardian and became our conqueror. So like Joseph, we just wait for the path to get smooth. And we wait for God to take us out and bring us in a new direction. Romans 8 tells us this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Okay, when Jesus was around 30 years old, it was time for some more preparation. He was to be baptized, and his cousin John was to do the baptizing. Later, Jesus would talk about his cousin and say, no greater man is on earth that was born of a woman. John the Baptist's entire life was dedicated to preparing people for Jesus. This was a job given to him by God himself, a job that the prophet Isaiah predicted. And so King Jesus had been concealed for long enough. Now the king's herald needs to announce his coming. You might want to look on your map and see where the Jordan River is, where some of those baptisms could have been taking place. And let me start reading chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord to make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That sounds like a good diet. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, I want you to be envisioning this. Now, this was probably, um, well, it was absolutely different than anything anyone had ever seen. This was, there was probably a type of self-imposed baptism that was going on at the time, um, in a formal way, that people who were proselytes who wanted to come into the Jewish faith, they would have the self-imposed baptism. But the baptism of John was something totally new. He was the first person to come baptizing others. And he also didn't do it among the courts. He did it out in the wilderness because he wanted to separate people from the religious systems of the day. As the last of Israel's prophets, John was commissioned to let it be known the reign of God is here immediately. It's going to be manifested in all of Israel, in all its fullness, and it's going to be in the person and the work of none other than the Messiah himself, the Messiah they'd been waiting for. A long time for that great coming, John is saying, prepare your hearts. And we can picture this big man, and he's sort of in the form of Elijah the prophet, and he's wearing camel skins, and he's got a cowhide belt around his waist, and he's got locusts in his pockets. His hands are sticky. They've got honey on them. And he's yelling over the ground, repent. The kingdom is here. The Messiah is coming. Turn away from your sins. Now, there were things about these words that were new as well. The idea that repentance was necessary to come into the Messiah's kingdom, to change the heart and the mind and turn from your sins, was odd because the Jews felt that as being descendants of Abraham, they didn't have to do that. They had an automatic open door, run right into that messianic kingdom because of who we are. And they approached John, many of them, with those comments about, wait a minute, we're Abraham's descendants. He's our father. We're good to go in the messianic kingdom. 
they didn't even recognize how far they had strayed away from what God desired of them. They didn't even notice that they had written rule upon rule and become legalistic and burdened the people with their own thoughts on how to know God. So John is saying to be ready to receive the kingdom and the reign of God, you must repent, Israel. And many of them were doing it. And I think some of the religious leadership was also doing it. Many weren't. But that's what was happening. And so his baptism signified confession of sin and commitment to a holy life, anticipating the arrival of their Messiah. Look at verse 11, chapter 3. John says to them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know, John the Baptist knew that he could plunge people, uh, the repentant, he could plunge them into cold waters, but only Jesus could baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Water is cleansing but it has no lasting mark. The spirit is eternal when it comes to make its home in our heart. Fire melts and purges and judges, in this case, the true believer from the false. Jesus will burn the chaff that rejects him, referring mostly to these religious leaders, many that stood on the banks judging John and his work. And only Jesus has the authority to perform the baptism of judgment. But those who believe in the Christ Messiah will receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that would arrive after the resurrection of Christ. One day, much to John's surprise, the Messiah himself came to the river. Look at verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Okay, this is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, the baptism of Jesus. I wish I had been there. I like how John also gives us more insight, so let's see on our verse sheet what he has to say. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. Wow, what a moment. What a moment for John to be standing there, and up comes Jesus beginning to approach him on the banks of the Jordan River. 
And it seems like John wasn't 100% sure yet that Jesus was the Messiah, but because of his words, it seems that his spirit knew that he probably was. You know, think about, remember when Jesus was still in Mary's womb and John was still in his mother Elizabeth's womb and they saw each other? What happened to Elizabeth's baby John? Leapt inside. The spirit moved it. And so I think that the spirit is moving him here as well. John had a special spirit about the coming Messiah. And so now he's in Jesus' presence again, and the Spirit moves him, and he protests against baptizing Jesus. The word means strong protest, forbade him. Should I baptize the one who has existed through all eternity? Should I baptize the Lamb of God who's going to carry the sins of Israel? Should I baptize one who is sinless? And has no need for repentance? And Jesus says, John, let it be so. It's fitting for all righteousness. And John consented. But what did Jesus mean? Okay, I want you to look at the Jordan. I want you to look around the river. People are coming in and out of the water, confessing their sinfulness, and standing in the middle of them is Jesus Christ. This marked his first identification publicly with the people he came to save, with those whose sins that he would bear. If Messiah were to provide righteousness for sinners, he must be identified with sinners. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll understand what he means by it will fulfill all righteousness. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus wanted to accomplish. He wants to be able to impute righteousness to sinners. And I read this. In undergoing baptism, Jesus is accepting his destiny. As one with his people, as one with humanity, he takes upon himself their sins at the same time dedicating himself to his holy vocation. Jesus' baptism was also there for a beautiful picture of his death and burial and his resurrection, a picture of the work he came to do. Look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity were at Jesus' baptism. Not only that, they opened the heavens up to him. As Jesus' vocational need appeared, heavenly resources were made apparent to him right above him. And rising out of the earthly elements of water, he was immediately surrounded by heavenly elements of God. The voice of God, his Father, dropped down from heaven and spoke into Jesus' heart, speaking words From Psalms and Isaiah, words Jesus would have known well. Words about the coming Messiah, words about Jesus. With those words, 
God introduced the world to his son. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And to top it off, the spirit came in the form of a dove and rested on Jesus as well. And so at his baptism, Jesus was authenticated by these signs, by the heavens opened. And he was also empowered by the anointing of the Spirit and the voice of his Son. Jesus' baptism verified that Jesus is the Son of God. The King is now proclaimed. The King is now anointed. He's ready for the task at hand. You know, I think this is a great example for us regarding baptism. Just like Jesus began his ministry journey... When he came up out of that water, we rise up from our baptism determined to do the work God has planned for us to do. It's an example of um, our demonstration that God has our heart and we want to love him and follow his will all of our life. God had one more plan for Jesus before his public ministry began. He would send his son to the desolate wilderness for some serious testing. You might want to look on your map and see where that was as well. It was by the Dead Sea. Uh, let me tell you what it looked like. Desolate, covered in sand, covered in rocks and limestone. Hills there were called dust heaps. 35 miles by 15 miles of that, a true wilderness. In the Old Testament, this area was called Jeshimon, and it means devastation. It, it really does look like a nuclear bomb went off on it. That's where Jesus went. Waiting for Jesus there was the great tempter. No sooner was Jesus anointed than he was assailed. And we can take Mark in that and remember that for our lives as well look at chapter 4 verse 1 Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry and the tempter came to him and said if you're the son of God command these stones to become loaves of bread but Jesus answered it's written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God Okay, I want us to recognize first, God is never an agent of temptation. God is never an agent of temptation. James tells us this on your verse sheet, James 1. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Why would God desire us to be doing evil? But here, God uses satanic temptation to get his sovereign purposes accomplished so jesus was tempted to be disobedient to god's will in his life by overcoming satan he would embark on this ministry that would lead him to obedience all the way to death on a cross his temptations in the wilderness think about this these were temptations to rely on his father's first words that he heard at his baptism. This is my beloved son. But to ignore the words with whom I am well pleased. 
Those are words about obedience. That's the temptation, being the son of God without following God's will. So Satan would tempt Jesus to avoid treading a path of suffering that God had called him to, to accomplish our salvation. And we're going to see as we go through these that there are correlations between Jesus' wilderness experience and Israel's wilderness experience after they were released from Egypt before they got to the promised land. We read that Jesus was called out of Egypt to be the obedient child of God. And we can just see in Jesus, in this temptation, the perfection that God wanted to see in Israel, who was also called to be God's son out of the country of Egypt, a holy nation. But because of their disobedience, they never were. So Moses is without food and drink on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights. Jesus was experiencing this in his own wilderness right here. Uh, and this is near Jericho. And he's hungry. And Satan knows it. What a perfect time for temptation. When we're hungry for things. Be it food or be it whatever. So the first temptation was for Jesus to act independently from his father. And Satan begins his temptations with a lie as usual. If you are the son of God. He doesn't say since you are, you are. He says if, maybe you aren't. Maybe I can make you doubt it. But let's say, uh, let's see you're hungry. You could just turn these stones into bread. But that wasn't God's will for Jesus. God wanted Jesus hungry. Satisfying his hunger would be giving in to the desires of the flesh, which is what it always is when we do what we want and not what God wants. But Jesus resists this temptation by quoting Moses from the book of Deuteronomy. When Israel was hungry in the wilderness, they complained about being hungry, were mad at God about being hungry, and Moses told the people, remember when God gave you manna? Remember, he provided that, but he waited so you would know what true life is all about. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by everything that comes out of the mouth of God. And Jesus speaks this back to Satan. He's saying it's much better to find satisfaction in God's words than in human desires. God's word is our greatest sustenance. Second temptation was for Jesus to oppose God's will for his personal gain, and we would call this sin the pride of life. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now Satan's gotten smart. He figured out, oh, Jesus used a scripture in the first temptation. I'll, I'll pull one out of the air. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, we don't know if Satan literally took Jesus to the temple. It was probably within a vision. But it would have been the southeast corner of the temple complex because there was a massive retaining wall that went all the way down into the Kidron Valley, 450-foot drop. 
This is probably the vision that Satan is giving Christ. And then he uses the word of God in a twisted way. So first, um, in Malachi, there was a prophecy that said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly appear in the temple. So there was a tradition that the Jews held that that meant the Messiah was just going to gloriously drop out of heaven into the temple one day. And so Satan knows that. So he says, do what the people are expecting the Messiah to do. Make some marvelous entrance. Do some huge display for the people. Look as important as you are, Jesus. After all, Psalm 91 says angels will protect you. And here Satan twists the meaning of this verse. He leaves out the rest of the verse, which talks about being obedient to God, being in God's will. And then he distorts what the passage is about. It's about trusting in God's protection, not testing God's protection. So Jesus repeats another verse from Deuteronomy, don't put God to the test. When Israel wanted water in their wilderness, they tested God saying, is God here or what? And later they were reminded, don't test God again like you did in Massah in your wilderness. Wouldn't it have been a grand opening for Jesus to begin his ministry this way? For him to be like coming through the clouds and coming down and angels flying around and carrying him down. Jesus didn't do it that way. Jesus did it God's way. A grand opening, being baptized by a hairy man in the wilderness. <laughs> With honey and locusts for a snack. Third temptation. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This final temptation was for Jesus to seek glory apart from God's plan of suffering, to give in to the desire of the eyes, a third category of sin. You know, because at that point, Satan was the prince of the world. Corinthians tells us he's called the God of this age. And so he brought Jesus to a mountaintop and said, look at all these glorious kingdoms. They can be yours, just right here, just now, just real quick, bow down and worship to me. The reality was God's plan already involved Jesus ruling the world, but that involved rejection and pain, suffering, loneliness, and a cruel cross. Doing it Satan's way, Jesus could have bypassed all that suffering. It was an easy way to power and glory that was one day going to be Jesus's anyway. Satan is saying, take the kingdoms without the toil. Take these kingdoms without the tears. Just pay homage to me. This was the climax of the wilderness temptations. You know, Israel forgot those very words that God spoke to them in the wilderness to worship and serve him alone. 
In his wilderness, Jesus did not. He looked Satan in the eye and he said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The reign of God can never be established by satanic means. And I love it that he said, Be gone. And he was gone. He had no power over Jesus. Jesus had all power over him. These are the same temptations from the Garden of Eden. Satan appealed first to the physical appetites of Adam and Eve. Secondly, he appealed to their desire for personal gain. Then he offered them an easy path to power and glory. Satan approaches us. With these same temptations. This many years later, he's still doing this. And guess what? Jesus experienced it first. So he would be there for us. So he would know what it felt like. So he could care. So he would help us. He shows us how to stay strong in these trials. And here's three ways he shows us. First, know the word of God. Obviously, you want to do that or you wouldn't be here. It is our water in our dry wilderness. Psalm 119 tells us, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Secondly, know the character of God. That he's faithful. That we can trust him. That's how we can obey him. Look at what 1 Peter says. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Obedience in the wilderness of suffering comes from entrusting our souls to our faithful creator because we know his character. When we know his character, we will obey him. You know, I found myself many years ago in this land of devastation and a deep wilderness, and I couldn't figure any way I was getting out of Egypt. And I remember I would just sit on my bed, take my guitar, and I had this one little verse I would sing over and over. I know not what my future holds, Lord, I have no way of knowing, but I know the one who holds my future, so I have no fear of where I'm going. Know the character of God. Thirdly, know the purpose of God. Know the word of God, the character of God, the purpose of God. His purpose is to mature us. His purpose is to reward us in the future. Look what James says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God is ever preparing us to one day spend eternity with him. That's how much he loves us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you went through these trials and you care about ours. 
We give them to you today, the things that are heavy on our hearts and burdens. We trust that you are our deliverer, our guardian, and our conqueror. In Jesus' name, amen.